Part two, chapters six and seven of How I Filmed the War by Geoffrey H. Mallins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six. My first visit to Ypres and Arras. To Ypres. This was the order for the day. The news gave me a thrill of excitement. The thunder of the big guns grew louder as we approached the front line until they seemed to merge into one continuous roar. Stopping on the road, I asked if the Germans were strafing today. Yes, said one of our military police. They were shelling us pretty heavily this morning. You will have to be very careful moving about inside. Bosch machines are always up in the air, taking bearings for the guns. Arriving at the outskirts of the ruined town, we were pulled up by a sentry, who, finding our papers in order, allowed us to proceed. At that moment a furious fusillade of gunfire attracted our attention, and three shrill blasts of a whistle rang out. Then we heard a cry, Everyone under cover! Stopping the car, I immediately jumped out and stood under cover of a broken-down wall, and looking up could see the cause of this activity. High in the air, about eight to ten thousand feet, was a Bosch aeroplane, and while I was watching it, shrapnel shells from our anti-aircraft guns were exploding round it like rain a great number were fired at it the whole sky was flecked with white and black patches of smoke but not one hit was recorded the machine seemed to sail through that inferno as if nothing were happening and at last it disappeared in the haze over its own lines only then were we allowed to proceed i had made a rough program of what to film and had decided to start from the grand place in a few words i may say that i filmed the place from the remains of the cloth hall the cathedral and various districts of the town but to try and describe the awful condition of what was once the most beautiful town in belgium would be to attempt the impossible no pen and no imagination could do justice to it the wildest dreams of dante could not conjure up such terrible such awful scenes the immensity of the outrage gripped me perhaps more completely when I stood upon the heap of rubble that was once the most beautiful piece of architecture of its kind in all the world. The cloth hall and the cathedral looked exactly as if some mighty scythe had swept across the ground, leveling everything in its path. The monster fifteen-inch German shells had dismembered and torn open the buildings brick by brick. Confusion and devastation reigned everywhere no matter in what direction you looked. It was as if the very heavens and the earth had crashed together, crushing everything between them out of all semblance to what it had been. The ground was literally pockmarked with enemy shell-holes. The stench of decaying bodies followed me everywhere. At times the horror of it all seemed to freeze the understanding, and it was difficult to realize that one was part and parcel of this world of ours. Literally, horror was piled upon horror and this was the twentieth century of which men boasted. This was civilization. Built by men's hands, the result of centuries of work. Now look at them, those beautiful architectural monuments destroyed in a few months by the vilest spawn that ever contaminated the earth, a breed that should and would be blotted out of existence as effectively as they had blotted out the town of Ypres. Beneath one large building lay buried a number of our gallant soldiers who were sheltering there wounded. The position was given away by spies, with the result that the Germans poured a concentrated fire of shells upon the helpless fellows, and the shelling was so terrific that the whole building collapsed 
and buried every living soul beneath the debris. As I stood upon the heap, tears came into my eyes, and the spirits of the brave lads seemed to call out for vengeance. And even as I stood and pondered, the big guns rang out, the very concussion shaking bricks and dust upon me as I stood there. While filming the scene, German shells came hurtling and shrieking overhead, exploding just behind me, and scattering the debris of the ruins high above and whizzing in my direction. To obtain a good viewpoint, I clambered upon a mount of bricks nearly fifty feet high, all that was left of the cathedral tower. From that eminence I could look right down into the interior, and I succeeded in taking an excellent film of it. While doing so, two German shells exploded a short distance away. Whether it was the concussion or pieces of shell that struck it, I do not know, probably the latter, but large pieces of stone and granite fell at my feet, and one piece hit my shoulder. So I quickly made my way to more healthy quarters, and even as I left, the shells overhead began to shriek with redoubled fury, as if the very legions of hell were moaning, aghast at the terrible crime which the fiendish Huns had perpetrated. Arras, although not by any means as badly damaged as Ypres, is one of the most historical and beautiful places systematically destroyed by the Germans. The cathedral, the wonderful museum, the Hôtel de Ville, once the pride of this broken city, are now no more. Arras provides yet another blasting monument of the unspeakable methods of warfare as practiced by the descendants of Attila the Hun. The city was as silent as the tomb when I visited it. It was dead in every sense of the word, a place only fit for the inhabitants of the nether world. Only when the German shells came screaming overhead with unearthly noise in an empty street was the silence broken in this city of the dead. I visited the ruined cathedral and filmed various scenes of the interior and exterior, having to climb over huge mounds of fallen masonry to obtain my best viewpoints. In places, all that was left standing was the bare walls. The huge columns with their beautiful sculptures, no longer able to support the roof, still stood like grim sentinels watching over their sacred charge. And yet, despite the unholy bombardment to which the building had been subjected, three things remained unharmed and untouched in the midst of this scene of awful desolation the three crucifixes with the figures of christ still upon them gazed down upon this scene of horror and high upon the topmost joint of the south wall stood the cross the symbol of christianity unharmed the united endeavours of the powers of evil could not dislodge that sacred emblem from its topmost pinnacle I left the cathedral and walked along the grass-covered streets, pockmarked by innumerable shell-holes, and every now and then I had to dive into some cellar for shelter from falling shells. At the Hôtel de Ville the same sight presented itself. A bombardment had reduced its walls to little more than a tottering shell, which fell to pieces at the merest touch. CHAPTER Seven: THE BATTLE OF SAINT-ELOI a bombardment was to take place, a rather vague statement and a common enough occurrence, but not so this one. I had a dim idea, not without foundation as it turned out, that there was more in this particular bombardment than appeared on the surface. Why this thought crossed my mind I do not know, but there it was, and I also felt that it would somehow turn out seriously for me before I had finished. I was to go to a certain spot to see a general, 
and obtained permission to choose a good viewpoint for my machine. My knowledge of the topography of this particular part of the line was none too good. Reaching the place, I met the general, who said in a jocular way when I had explained my mission, Have you come to me today by chance, or have you heard something? This remark, had I heard something, confirmed my opinion that something was going to happen. Without more ado, the general told me the bombardment would take place on the morrow, somewhere about 5.30 a.m. In that case, I said, it will be quite impossible to obtain any photographs. Anyway, I added, if you will permit me, sir, I will sleep in the front-line trenches tonight, and so be ready for anything that may happen. I could choose a good spot for my machine this afternoon. Well, he replied, it's a hot corner, and going to the section maps, he told me our front line was only forty-five yards away from the Bosch. You will, of course, take the risk, but honestly speaking, I don't expect to see you back again. This was anything but cheerful, but being used to tight corners I did not mind the risk so long as I got some good films. The general then gave me a letter of introduction to another general, who, he said, would give me all the assistance he could. Armed with this document, I started out in company of a staff officer who was to guide me to the brigade headquarters. Arriving there, it was the most advanced point to which cars were allowed to go, I obtained two orderlies gave one my aeroscope, the other the tripod, and strapping another upon my back, we started off on a two-mile walk over a small hill through communication trenches to the section. At a point which boasted the name of Cooker Farm, which consisted of a few dugouts well below ground level and about five by six feet high inside by seven feet square, I interviewed two officers who phoned to the front line telling them of my arrival. They wished me all good luck on my venture, and gave me an extra relay of men to get me to the front. A considerable amount of shelling was going on overhead, but none fortunately came in my immediate neighborhood. The nearest was about fifty yards away. From our front-line trenches, the Bosch lines were only forty-five yards away. Therefore, dangers were to be anticipated from German snipers. A great many of our men had actually been shot through the loophole of plates, I immediately reported myself to the officer in charge, who was resting in a dugout built in the parapet. He was pleased to see me and promised me every assistance. I told him I wished to choose a point of vantage from which I could film the attack. Placing my apparatus in the comparative safety of the dugout, I accompanied him outside. Rifle fire was continuous. Shells from our sixty-pounders and four-point-twos were thundering past overhead and on either side, minis, German bombs, were falling and exploding with terrific force, smashing our parapets and dugouts as if they had been the thinnest of matchwood. Fortunately for us, these interesting novelties could be seen coming. Men are always on the lookout for minis, and when one has been fired from the Bosch, it rises to a height of about five hundred feet, and then, with a sudden curve, descends. At that point, it is almost possible to calculate the exact whereabouts of its fall. Everyone watches it. The space is quickly cleared, and it falls and explodes harmlessly. Sometimes the explosion throws the earth up to a height of nearly 150 feet. While I was deciding upon the exact point of the parapet upon which I would place the camera, a sudden cry of, Minnie, was heard. Looking up, I saw it was almost overhead and with a quick rush and a dive I disappeared into a dugout. 
I had barely got my head into it before Minnie fell and blew the mud in all directions, covering my back plentifully, but fortunately doing no other damage. Eventually I decided upon the position, and looking through my periscope saw the German trenches stretching away on the right for a distance of half a mile, as the ground dipped into a miniature valley. From this point I could get an excellent film, and if the Germans returned our fire I could revolve the camera and obtain the resulting explosions in our lines. The farmhouse where I spent the night was about nine hundred yards behind the firing track. All that now remained of a once prosperous group of farm buildings were the battered walls, but with the aid of a plentiful supply of sandbags and corrugated iron the cellars were made comparatively comfortable. By the time I reached there it was quite dark but by carefully feeling my way with the aid of a stick i stumbled down the five steps into the cellar and received a warm welcome from captain blank who introduced me to his brother officers they all seemed astounded at my mission never imagining that a moving picture man would come into the front battle line to take pictures the place was about ten feet square the roof was a lean-to and was supported in the centre by three tree trunks four wooden frames upon which was stretched some wire netting served as bedsteads in a corner stood a bucket fire the fumes and smoke going up an improvised chimney of petrol tins in the centre was a rough table one corner of it was kept up by a couple of boxes other boxes served as chairs rough as it was it was like heaven compared with other places at which i have stayed by the light of two candles placed in biscuit tins we sat round and chatted upon kinematograph and other topics until eleven thirty p m the colonel of another regiment then came in to arrange about the positions of the relieving battalions which were coming in on the following day he also arranged for his sniping expert and men to accompany the patrolling parties which were going out at midnight in no man's land to mend mines and spot german loopholes a message came through by phone from brigade headquarters that the time of attack was five forty five a m I could have jumped for joy. If only the sky was clear, there would be enough light for my work. The news was received in quite a matter-of-fact way by the others present, and after sending out carrying parties for extra ammunition for bomb guns, they all turned in to snatch a few hours' sleep, with the exception of the officer on duty. At twelve o'clock I turned in. Rolling myself in a blanket and using my trench coat and boots as a pillow, I lay and listened to the continual crack of rifle fire and the thud of bullets striking and burying themselves in the sandbags of our shelter. Now and then I dozed, and presently I fell asleep. I suddenly awakened with a start. What caused it I know not. Everything seemed unnaturally quiet. With the exception of an isolated sniper, the greatest war in history might have been thousands of miles away. I lit a cigarette and was slowly puffing it, time for fifteen a m when a tremendous muffled roar rent the air the earth seemed to quake i expected the roof of our shelter to collapse every minute the shock brought my other companions tumbling out something was happening the rumble had barely subsided when it seemed as if all the guns in france had opened rapid battery fire at the same moment shells poured over our heads towards the german positions in hundreds the shrieking and ear-splitting explosives were terrific from the sharp bark of the four point two to the heavy rumble and rush of the nine-inch howl the germans surprised in their sleep seemed absolutely demoralized 
they were blazing away in all directions firing in the most wild and extraordinary manner anywhere and everywhere shells were crashing and smashing their way into the remains of the outbuildings and they were literally exploding all round captain blank instructed his officers to see what had happened to the ammunition party they disappeared in the hell of shell-fire as though it were quite an everyday incident i opened the door climbed the steps and stood outside the sight which met my eyes was magnificent in its grandeur the heavens were split by shafts of lurid fire masses of metal shot in all directions leaving a trail of sparks behind them bits of shell shrieked past my head and buried themselves in the walls and sandbags one large missile fell in an open space about forty feet on my left and exploded with a deafening ear-splitting crash at the same moment another exploded directly in front of me instinctively i ducked my head the blinding flash and frightful noise for the moment stunned me and i could taste the exploding gas surrounding me i stumbled down the steps into the cellar and it was some minutes before i could see clearly again my companions were standing there calmly awaiting events the frightful din continued it was nothing but high explosives high explosive shrapnel ordinary shrapnel trench bombs and bullets from german machine guns one incessant hail of metal who on earth could live in it what worried me most was that there was not sufficient light to film the scene but thank heaven it was gradually getting lighter it was now five a m the shelling continued with increasing intensity i got my apparatus together and with two men decided to make my way to the position in the front line shouldering my camera i led the way followed by the men at a distance of twenty yards several times on the journey shrapnel balls and splinters buried themselves in the mud close by when i reached the firing trench all our men were standing to arms with grim faces awaiting their orders i fixed up the tripod so that the top of it came level with our parapet and fastened the camera upon it it topped the parapet of our firing trench the germans only forty-five yards away and to break the alignment i placed sandbags on either side of it in this position i stood on my camera case and started to film the battle of st eloi our shells were dropping in all directions smashing the german parapets to pulp and blowing their dugouts sky high the explosions looked gorgeous against the ever-increasing light in the sky looking through my viewfinder i revolved first on one section then on the other from a close view of six-inch shells and minis bursting to the more distant view of our nine point two then looking right down the line i filmed the clouds of smoke drifting from the heavy woolly bears or high shrapnel then back again shells 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 bursting masses of molten metal every explosion momentarily shaking the earth the germans suddenly started throwing minis over so revolving my camera i filmed them bursting over our men the casualties were very slight for fully an hour i stood there filming this wonderful scene and throughout all the inferno neither i nor my machine was touched a fragment of shrapnel touched my tripod taking a small piece out of the leg that was all shortly after seven o'clock the attack subsided and as my film had all been used up i packed and returned to my shelter what a scoop this was it was the first film that had actually been taken of a british attack what a record the thing itself had passed 
it had gone yet i had recorded it in my little seven by six inch box and when this terrible devastating war was over and men had returned once again to their homes businessmen to their offices ploughmen to their ploughs they would be able to congregate in a room and view all over again the fearful shells bursting killing and maiming on that winter's morning of march twenty seventh nineteen sixteen end of part two chapters six and seven